deed and in heart uh, as we give back. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, and if you're new with us, please feel free to let this moment pass you by. Um, but yeah, so this morning we're very excited, um, not that Ben and Laura are gone, but um, we are very excited to have um, uh, Ted Chen with us this morning. He is no stranger to the house, I mean, from the beginning. He has been um, coming here and preaching the word. He's actually from the Santa Monica location. He has ties down there. So we um, are very blessed to have him this morning. I'm not going to do too big of a ado, but he is a newscaster. Are you still with NBC? Yeah. So he has been um, all around the city. He's seen probably the best and the worst of LA. And so we're just really excited to have him here. So please give a welcome to Ted Chen. Thank you so much. And um, congratulations, Mark and Emily. I had the privilege, I think I saw them there just a second ago. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, going to Boston for the very first time a couple years ago for my seminary graduation, and I'll be visiting once a year for the next three years pursuing my doctorate. So I'm very excited for you guys. Great town, and another hand for the two of them. And I also want to give a shout out to, to, to Ben and Laura and Carla and John and Matt and the team here. Aren't they doing an amazing job? Yeah. God is doing amazing things in this church. I always knew vintage Pasadena was the coolest, and now it is literally true. <laughs> I, I had just the privilege of seeing the very beginnings of vintage Pasadena when, when Ben and Laura felt the call from God to come from the UK. Uh, here, it was Vintage Church's second plant. I've been with Vintage Santa Monica since the beginning as well, since uh, 2011. We were in a tiny little movie theater in Westwood, if those of you know, the Broxton Movie Theater. Uh, really, really small theater, about 30 or so people at the time. The kids' area was right in front of the popcorn machine. And it was just a fun time. Pastor Gare and the team was loading up the U-Haul and unloading it at the beginning of the Sunday morning and then doing it all again at, at, at the end of the day. And at the time, he was also emailing all the new people, uh, myself included, and meeting them for coffee. And I remember that first meeting, it was at Santa Monica Place at the very top of the mall. And uh, he was just so warm and welcoming. He basically had me at hello. Uh, my journey with Christ really began in college. I accepted Christ as my savior at UCLA, go Bruins. Uh, but I didn't under, really understand what that meant. You know, I thought I could just believe in Jesus and be on my merry way, but Jesus doesn't just ask us to believe in him. He asks us to follow him. He asks us not just to believe in him, but to follow him. I thought I could just believe in him, go to church from time to time, and just kind of live the life I wanted. And that's what I did for the next two decades. I lived a very worldly life here in LA. I party a lot. But then about 13 years ago in 2010, I, I hit a big pothole in my life, basically hit rock bottom. And, and I said, Lord, I, I have nothing left. I'm finally ready to surrender my life completely and follow you. And that's when he brought me to Vintage Church. And it was at Vintage Church that I found the community that I always had longed for. And I found such peace and joy and comfort and passion 
in worshiping God and in serving the church and in serving in missions, the poor and the marginalized. I thought I had finally arrived. But a few years in, I began to hit some potholes again. You know, some old problems began to uh, resurface and I, I thought I was going to find my dream person while going to Vintage uh, after really following Jesus and that wasn't happening. I was seeing some conflict in the church. Some people were upset and I, I remember saying specifically to, to Lizzie Jones, who Pastor Gare's wife, I wasn't expecting this. I thought being a Christian was gonna be all rainbows and unicorns. And some rough things are happening. What's going on here? See, I was realizing that it doesn't quite work that way. Following Jesus is going to be the best decision you ever make in your life. And yes, there's going to be amazing things. You get to enter the kingdom of God. There will be healing and restoration and reconciliation. But because we still live in this broken world, and until Jesus returns, we're going to experience the same things as everybody else does. We're going to experience heartbreak. We're going to experience hardship. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. And Jesus, he wants us to be prepared for that. He wants us to know there will be a cost to following him. He wants us to see that clearly. He wants us to have clear eyes. Anybody ever watch the show uh, Friday Night Lights about a high school football team in Texas? Any hands? A few? Okay. Do you know the catchphrase? What, what, what the coach says to the team uh, right before every game. Can anybody tell me the catchphrase? You got it. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. To me, that captures what following Jesus and Christianity is all about. When we make that choice, when we decide to follow Jesus, we get to enter the kingdom of God. We get to be part of heaven on earth, of his renewing humanity. He fills our hearts with his love, with his strength, with his courage, with, with the Holy Spirit. And we get to participate in growing that kingdom until Jesus comes back and finishes the job. And we get to be with him in glory. We can't lose. But until that happens, we need to have clear eyes as to what's ahead. If you can turn your Bibles to our, your apps to uh, Luke chapter 9, we're continuing our series in the book of Luke today. Now, we're at a, a key transition point because up to this point in the book of Luke, we're learning about who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. And that reached an apex last week when Pastor Ben talked about the transfiguration. When we see Jesus, his face shining, his clothes white, and we see the, the awesome power and the atomic power of God. And now in the passage we're going to hear about today, we're going to start learning about the cost of following Jesus. And so let's have Leanne come up and do the reading. Thank you. 
I will be reading from Luke 9, verses 51 to 57. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I'm going to read on into that passage a, a little bit more uh, as we go into Luke 9 even further. And as the disciples are with him, as they were walking along a, a road, a man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. We pray this morning that you grow our minds and enlighten our hearts and have it penetrate us and that we live our lives according to your truth and we understand the cost of following Jesus, but we know that cost is worth it and we press into it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus right here, and he seems to be pretty harsh. <laughs> And at first glance, it's, it seems like he's saying not to pay attention, attention to our families, which of course is not the case. He's not saying that. But before we go into specifically what he is saying, it's important to know that Jesus has a, has a very specific way of engaging people. In that, he engages each person specifically. He meets them where they're at. He knows our hearts. And he knows what's keeping us back. Do you remember the, the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? The rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he did not mean that as a general rule for all of us. But he knew specifically what was in this man's heart. and He knew specifically what was holding him back. And something similar is happening here. In this passage, he understands where these people were at, are at, he knows their hearts, and he answers in a way to get them thinking, to get all of us as followers of Jesus to think, to really know what, he's, uh, what we're getting into. And, and truth be told, he's trying to knock them down a peg or two, because that's part of Jesus' style too. Notice when he, when he engages people who are in pain, who are, who are suffering, like the blind man and the leper and, and the woman at the well and the woman who was bleeding and, and the woman caught in, 
in adultery. In those situations, he's, he's at his most tender. But in situations like this, like the Pharisees, like the people who are so confident in their own self-righteousness, who people, people who think they have it all figure out, figured out, they, who think they know it all, he's at his most blunt and sometimes harsh, like he sees here. Because what he's trying to do is wake us up. He's trying to wake us up and see clearly what it means to follow him. Because most people out there, they think being a Christian is, is just switching beliefs. It's switching allegiances. It's, it's, it's following a set of rules. It's, it's following a new doctrine. It's conversion. Now, there is truth to all of those things, but it's not the core of it. The core of being a, a follower of Jesus is that you are entering God's kingdom. You are entering a new realm. You are entering a new state of being. You're not just following a set of rules. You're not just taking a bunch of steps. Tim Keller puts it this way. When you're going from country to country, border to border, you could travel thousands of miles and thousands of miles and take different modes of transportation and make a lot of effort. But crossing that border into a new place is one step. Just one step. Everything else up to that, it hasn't happened. It takes just one step to cross into that new place. It takes just one step to cross into the kingdom of God. It takes one step to enter that new realm. And that's what being a Christian is all about. It's about being in that new realm. You get to take part in that kingdom and the healing and the restoration and reconciliation. And the kingdom of God is, is there and welcomed and ready for everyone willing to surrender their life to Jesus. Everyone willing to fully commit their lives to him. But it's not for the self-righteous. It's not for the people who think they have it all figured out, who think they know it all. It's not for those of us who expect instant gratification. And it's not for the idealist. What do we mean by that? Let's go to our passage again. The kingdom of God is not for the idealist. 57 and 58 in Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What's he trying to say there? He's talking to the idealists in all of us. Idealists, we're attracted to Christianity. Of course we are. Idealists are attracted to the heroics. They're, they're attracted to the glory. They're attracted to the miracles. And of course, that was a reality. Jesus was embodying all of these things. He was heroically standing against the Pharisees and the Roman Empire. He was doing miracles and he was bringing the glory of God to all of us. But, of course, there was another side to that. There was hardship. There was persecution. Jesus and his followers were under constant threat. They had to move from town to town. They had to go from meal to meal. They were essentially homeless. That's why he says... To this man, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
He's telling this man the hard reality of following Jesus, of being a Christian. Because this man needs to hear it. This man specifically needs to hear it because kind of has his head in the clouds. He sees the great parts, the fun parts of following Jesus. He doesn't see the hard parts. And Jesus is trying to open his eyes. And if you notice, that's a pattern throughout the Gospels. When Jesus is engaging people and one of his followers wants to make a bold declaration or a bold statement or has a bold question, Jesus has to basically set them straight. Matthew 20, James and John want to know, one of us wants to sit on your right, one of us wants to sit in your left, in the glory of the kingdom. And Jesus is very blunt with them. It's like, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? In other words, will you be able to suffer the way I'm about to suffer? And they say, yes, we are. Yes, we can. But are they really? Are they really prepared? Remember what happened when Jesus was captured. Peter betrayed him. The disciples scattered. As idealists, and we're all idealists, I think at one time or another, in one way or another, as idealists, we need to know what's ahead. We need to know the cost of following Jesus. We need to have clear eyes. We need to know, yes, there'll be miracles, there'll be healing, there'll be restoration. And as we follow him, he will build us in, in strength and in, and in character and in courage. And we will build untold treasures in heaven as followers of Jesus. But if we're expecting the treasures of this world, if we're expecting worldly success and wealth, then we're hopping on the wrong train. The kingdom of God isn't for people with stars in their eyes. As you guys know, a lot of people come to LA with stars in their eyes. They come wanting to be the next Tom Hanks or Julia Roberts or Zendaya or Dwayne Johnson. Big, big movie stars. They don't realize they're going to have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet and constantly being at risk of being homeless and that there's a less than 1% chance of being the next huge, big movie star. The kingdom of God doesn't advance through idealism or by having stars in your eyes. The kingdom of God advances largely through self-denial and suffering. In Romans 14, the apostle Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is offering. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And those are the things that really matter. Those are the things that fill our hearts. That's why in the end we can't lose. We just have to be prepared for the cost. I have some photos uh, of a mission trip to Kenya I did in 2010. This is, when, this is right at the time I, I, I finally surrendered my life uh, to Christ. I went to an orphanage just outside of Katali, Kenya, which is about 200 miles northwest 
of Nairobi. It was an orphanage there. About 50 children were there. All of them had lost their parents to either AIDS or murder or abandonment. Many of them had been abused. Uh, many of them were, were severely uh, disabled. And the couple that was running an orphanage was a wonderful couple named Jason and Amy Beagle. They are from Cerritos, California. And then they moved to uh, Seattle where Jason was a successful architect and Amy was a successful uh, speech therapist. But they heard God's call. They heard God's call to go to Kenya and run this orphanage. And their neighbors and friends in Seattle said, what are you doing? How could you do this? They had two young children at the time. How, how, how could you move your kids to Kenya where it's not safe? And I remember Amy Beagle saying this specifically, and I, I interviewed her for, to, for, for a story too, and she said, I believe the safest place to be is at the center of God's will. Uh, but Jason and Amy, in order to further God's kingdom, to bless these children, they made great sacrifices. Their mission came at great, great cost. But as you can see, it's been worth it. The kingdom of God isn't for idealists. The kingdom of God also isn't for FOMOs. Now, what do we mean by that? Let's go back to our passage. 59 through 62. There we are. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now there's some disagreement about the first man's situation among scholars. Some believe that the man's father isn't actually dead because Jewish law wouldn't have allowed this man to even be with Jesus during this time. And that what he's actually saying is, let me wait until my father is dead because my father would freak out if he knew that I was following you. Now, other scholars believe, well, no, his father is actually dead. And Jesus is being very blunt and very direct in that situation. And again, he's saying, he's not saying we shouldn't bury our loved ones. He, he's not saying we shouldn't care for our families. The Bible is very clear about that. We should love our families. We should honor our mother and father. What he is saying is that nothing should take precedence over following him. And nothing should take precedence over the kingdom of God. He should be our highest priority at all times. Over all other priorities. And there cannot be, let me follow you, but first... Let me follow you as long as there cannot be conditions. And we all like to have conditions. Oh, I'll, I'll go, I'll attend as long as I'll make this commitment. But first, I need to do that. 
And that may be fine for your average Facebook invitation, but it's not so great for the kingdom of God. Because when we make conditions on following God, what we're really saying is something else is more important. Something else is more important than following you right now. And that thing is my highest priority. And I have to have that thing before I follow you. There's a famous quote from uh, St. Augustine. Uh, And he had a mistress at the time. And he prayed to God, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Lord, make me good, but not yet. How many times have we, if we're not prayed this, but, but thought this, Lord, I want to follow you, but I have this, this job I want to finish, um, and it may take a little bit of cheating, a little bit of lying, it may be a little bit unethical, but it, it, it's a great gig, and um, I need to be financially cure, uh, secure, so uh, let me do this first. Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm dating this person right now, and they're just unbelievably hot. And I really don't want to wait till marriage, so, but first, Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm really uncomfortable with people different from myself, so I'm really not into serving the poor and helping the homeless, and I kind of want to stay in my own, you know, little bubble. Some priorities, of course, are good to have. It's good to prioritize financial security and money and stability. It's good to prioritize getting married and having a relationship and having children and family. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things. But Jesus is saying, if we put these things above God, we're on shaky ground. Because these things are going to wither. You know, these things are going to go away. They're going to die. And if we make these things paramount, we're going to obsess over them. We're going to fixate over them. And when they work out, and when they don't work out the way we want them to, our effort, our striving for these things is going to kill us. In other words, it's going to spiritually kill us we will wind up spiritually dead. Let the dead bury their own dead is Jesus' response to that. That's why following Jesus can't be partial. You can't, we can't on one hand say, well, we want Jesus as Savior, as I did in college, but we don't want him as Lord of our lives. We want him as Savior, but we don't want him as Lord because Jesus is both. He's both Lord and Savior. You can't separate the two. He's both our deeply personal Savior and Lord of the universe, whose word, whose very word holds galaxy after galaxy after galaxy together. That's why it's really just not appropriate that we would just view him as our own personal assistant, or our own genie in a bottle. And that's what we do when we, when we hold on to our conditions. 
even as we start following Jesus, and I know I do this from time to time, we can still hold on to our but first, to our as long as. And we do that when we say things like, you know, I know God loves me, but how come, if God really loves me, how come my career isn't going the way I want it to? If God loves me, how come I don't have a relationship yet? How come I'm not married yet? How come I don't have this shit? If God really loves me. And what we're really doing is we're looking at our old priorities again and making them first. And what is Jesus saying to that? Is that no one who looks back is fit to move forward into the kingdom of God. That if you keep looking back, you also wither away and eventually be spiritually dead. Lot's wife, you'll remember, looked back and she turned to stone. Could ask the worship team to come back up. The road ahead isn't going to be easy. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage. It's going to be full of potholes. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. And Jesus wants us to be prepared. There is a cost to following him. Sometimes it's a steep cost. But we know it's worth it because this world as we know it will eventually perish. Because we know that when Jesus returns and when heaven and earth are fully joined and restored, there will be no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. We will have a banquet, the likes of which none of us have ever seen. Not only will our bellies be full, but more importantly, our hearts will be full. We just have to be ready for what comes before that. We have to have clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. I want to finish with a, a quote from Billy Graham about what it means to surrender ourselves completely to Jesus and the cost. Billy Graham said this, think of your life as a house. You're the owner of the house. You have a ring of keys. And when you respond to the call of Christ, you give God the key to the front door of your house. You commit your life to Christ as Savior and Lord. And when you respond to God's call to consecration, you take off the other keys from the ring and give them to God. For a mother or a father, it means you go to the nursery and give your baby to Christ. For a student, it means that you give God the key to your education. For a business person, it means that you give God the key to your business. You give God the key to your romance. You give God the key to your future marriage. 
he becomes Lord. Why don't we stand and let's pray.